One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, science writer Michael Brooks returns to the show and talks about his book, At the Edge of Uncertainty, 11 Discoveries Taking Science by Surprise. Michael Brooks is the author of the best-selling non-fiction titles 13 Things That Don't Make Sense and Free Radicals, The Secret Anarchy of Science, both of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. He holds a PhD in quantum physics, is a consultant at New Scientist and writes a weekly column for The New Statesman. And his latest book is At the Edge of Uncertainty, 11 Discoveries Taking Signs by Surprise. So welcome back, Michael, first of all. Thank you very much. At the Edge of Uncertainty, that's uh, Jacob Bronowski. Quotes, yeah, isn't yeah. It? So, what do you mean by uncertainty? So, well, what I mean is the things that you know. The thing about science is, you know, you can never say it's right. We've been there in the past, and we've said, "Oh, this is how it is," and of course, it isn't. And so, you know, those who are kind of canny scientists will never claim one hundred percent that they're right. You know, it's always at the moment, to the best of our understanding, this is where we're at, and that's really what the book is about in some ways. You know, it's about those areas that seem promising, that seem really interesting, but we still can't be sure that they're going to be fruitful fields. I just really like the quote. So, the the full quote from Bronowski is that knowledge is personal and responsible an unending adventure at the edge of uncertainty. And uh, I like every aspect of that. I like the fact that our pursuit of knowledge is personal. Mm-hmm. You know, Schrodinger said that science is all about discovering who we are. That's kind of the only thing science really does, is answer that question of who we are. So it's personal. And a lot of these things that we go into, there's a sense of responsibility associated with gathering knowledge about them. So if you're going to sort of research something like chimeras, you know, mixing animals and humans, you've got to be quite responsible about that. You know, you mm-hmm. can't just go and do whatever you like doing and there are people who who have tried to in the past and you know and the results have not been good and so so you have this sense of it's personal it's human it's responsible but it is an adventure that is still kind of you know this stuff kind of just lights my eyes up mm-hmm. you know you look at some of these topics and you just think wow that blows my mind that's amazing and scientists are on this adventure although you know they'll tell you that I over romanticize science all the time you know I remember Jenny Rohn saying to me that you know the thing is you know you make it out like it's a discovery a day and it's always great fun and as she says you know it's 99% heartbreak working in a lab but there's still that sense of that's actually why they do it because it's it's an adventure 
adventure and, and you're trying to explore something and, and you're beyond the edge of what we know. And so it is this, you know, I think human beings have always done these explorations and going beyond, you know, and it used to be geographical and we kind of ran out of planet to do mm. that on. And now at least we have these scientific frontiers that we try and expand all the time and we go into that sort of space that we're really unsure about. You know, is it really true that time is an illusion? You know, well, let's explore that and let's sail into those waters and see what we find. And so it's that. I think that adventure and the kind of not knowing whether it's what you're going to find is where it all comes from. But I don't think people necessarily, the man or woman in the street, is not necessarily aware that science is a quest almost always for for the unknown. Yeah. People tend to think that we've discovered most things already. Yeah. And indeed, there's been various points in scientific history that are well rehearsed, where people have said, that's it, we've discovered everything there is to know now, and yeah. then suddenly quantum theory. Yeah, know. yeah, there are these classic points in history, aren't they, where somebody says something, and it's almost like they say it, and that's the, the spur to change. Yeah. And somebody said, you know, we, we've discovered almost everything there is to know about physics just before Einstein discovered relativity and kind of changed our whole view of the universe. And it's kind of, like you say, it's kind of well rehearsed to say, oh, you know, things always change. And these revolutions don't come along all the time. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you can say scientists have discovered an awful lot and we do know an awful lot. But there's still an awful lot that we don't know. So I think anybody working, you know, the deeper you delve into a field the more you realise you don't know about mm-hmm. that particular field. You know, and that's what kind of spurs you on. And, of course, you, you know, in a lifetime, you can only do you know, a small amount of the work that needs doing. So I always think science is this kind of legacy project. You, know, you talk about politicians having a legacy. I think scientists have a legacy where you know, they've done this work, but they've always left far more work mm-hmm. to the next person who comes along. You also make a distinction, I think, in the introduction to the book between the donkey work of science is chipping away. Yeah. You know, most people, 99% of scientists, are chipping away at the edges of stuff that we already know and making little tiny yeah. sort of steps. But every now and then there is somebody that just makes a massive leap into yeah. the unknown. Yeah, and that of course is part of this over-romanticisation of mm-hmm. science is that, that actually a lot of lab work is drudge work. Mm-hmm. You're not going to start your PhD and finish it with some you know, incredible you know, new grasp of, of the nature of reality. It's very unlikely that will happen. It does happen for some people. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you, know, you get people who will just make these discoveries and, and everybody's wowed by them. But that's you know, once or twice in, in a lifetime of maybe one in a hundred scientists. Now, mm-hmm. some people have used this to argue to say, you know, oh, we've got too many scientists and we should thin it out a bit and we shouldn't sort of put so much effort into dotting the I's and crossing the T's of every subject going. But the trouble with that is you never actually know where the big breakthrough and the big sort of revelation is going to come from. So you have to cover the bases, really. You mentioned then that there's, you know, there's often somebody comes up with discovery and there's and there's a wow, but actually, you know, the opposite more often happens in that people tell them to shut up and say, what are you talking about? And you do talk about, at the beginning, I want to talk about a few examples before we get into the, the sort of meat of the book yeah. of people in the past that have come to these the edge of the cliff, taken the leap, and, you know, either been derided or mocked or, or thought wrong for decades yeah. about things that now we take for granted. Yeah, so, I mean, and the classic one is the atom, mm-hmm. you know. So, so we had Paul Ludwig Boltzmann, you know, argued for the atom and argued from statistical arguments about pressure of volume and temperature of a gas. And he said, you know, it, it makes sense that atoms really exist because they would have this effect on the walls of a container mm-hmm. if you change the pressure or change the temperature, whatever. And he made very good arguments. But at the time, nobody wanted to know. You know, so you had people like Ernst Mach, 
you know, hugely respected physicist working alongside him who just said, I just refuse to believe that anything other than mathematical constructs. You know, and it seems really bizarre to me because, you know, of course, we've had the concept of the atom since Democritus, since mm-hmm. ancient Greece. So if, to our ears, it seems really strange that there might have been this period at the end of the 19th century when people were saying that it didn't, you know, that the atoms actually didn't exist. I mean, Boltzmann wasn't a hugely stable character anyway. It was kind of, I think, what we'd call bipolar now and ended up you know, he made one suicide attempt and then he ended up actually making a sadly successful suicide attempt. And, you know, it's all interrelated, I think, with the a program that he, he got from his colleagues mm-hmm. over this. He once said that he heard Mac when they're having an argument, just say, I refuse to believe that the atom exists. And he just said it so dismissively. He said it just went round and round in his head. And and yet, of course, you know, five years after Boltzmann's death, you know, we get Brownian motion. Einstein kind of, you know, shows the, the photoelectric effect. And we get this whole sort of subatomic world open up. And sadly, you know, Boltzmann died too soon. But it's not an uncommon pattern in, in physics that you get proved right after you die. There are a couple of examples that you mentioned where the scientists themselves have been unwilling to believe their own conclusions. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because that's kind of classic Popperian science, you know, (laughs) falsify your own results. You you find this thing and then you attempt to sort of find the hole in it. And so you had people like um, Henri Poincaré got pretty close to relativity Mm -hmm. before Einstein and then realised the whole thing about time dilation and time sort of being, you know, flexible and and being able to sort of extend and not being a, a fixed thing and just walked away from it you know it was just like okay that's too much for me and and just kind of backed off and didn't want to have to deal with it and sort of left it open for Einstein to do and then you have people like Benjamin Libet who discovered that human beings seem not to have free will through his neuroscience experiments and then literally spent the rest of his life trying to prove himself wrong because he didn't like where it was coming from and I can understand why he didn't like it you know mm-hmm. even today you know you can't tell people that they don't have free will you know it's a, it's a very difficult thing to accept and no matter what you show them neuroscience experiments they always say yeah but it's not the same as real life kind of thing and that was the best view that there must be a way that we kind of override this lack of free will that our brain makes us do something rather than some decision we make but um again it went to his grave unable to kind of get away from the conclusion James Ward, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You talk about free will, and you begin the book, we'll get into the actual meat of the book now, and you start off looking at consciousness. Yeah. And and consciousness is something that's often described as the hard problem. You sort of elucidate why it is considered impossible for conscious beings to be able to understand consciousness. Why is that? The trouble with the consciousness is that we want all our science to be objective. So you want to get a report of something from somebody else and be able to verify that, listen to it, you know, kind of make sense of it. And of course, consciousness exists inside each person's head. Nobody else has access to that consciousness. And that's why it was kind of said to be, you know, the hard problem is that you, you kind of never know what somebody else is feeling. You know, you, you, you can never be sure that they're an accurate reporter of this and so it's very difficult to do a kind of scientific experiment on it but really I think neuroscientists are kind of getting past that now and they're saying you know what I mean that's a very defeatist attitude why don't we start 
for instance, by looking at the circuits that, that contribute to what we call consciousness. I mean, it's, it's, consciousness is hard. I think it's always going to be hard. But we starting, you can start to build circuits and, and sort of analyse it and break it down and kind of and then rebuild things and, you know, look for the signs of something showing the signs of consciousness. And, and that's, not, that's not to say we'll get to the end of it and we'll say, ha, right, that's mm-hmm. it, that's consciousness solved. I'm not sure you ever solve it, partly because we don't even know how to really define it. But I think it's no longer the hard problem. It's no longer intractable. It's no longer in that class of things that is not really scientific and you shouldn't really attempt. I think mm-hmm. it, it's very clear that we should attempt it. And, and we've got end of life issues to explore and we've got you know the possibility of conscious robots to explore and there are kind of you know moves in the eu to turn to do legislation to put legislation in place because people are going to have to deal with more and more intelligent robots and maybe they'll never be fully what we would call conscious mm-hmm. but they'll get close to it i think you know there's no reason to think that they won't so yeah so it's not a hard problem it's also often been argued that consciousness is something that you either have or you don't have but it looks like that's not it's clear-cut anymore. No, I mean, and it's funny, because when you look back at that and you think somebody made that argument and that seems to be, you know, you look and you say, oh, yeah, well, that's conscious and that isn't. You know, the, the rock on the desk isn't conscious. The person sitting in the chair is conscious. And it's sort of like art, you know, you know it when you see it. You know, mm-hmm. you know it when you see it. Oh, that's art, that isn't art. And actually what we're seeing is just is this complete spectrum of things. And so there's no reason to think that a mouse isn't conscious. And actually, you know, there's no reason to think in some ways that a cockroach isn't conscious. They show certain distinct kind of patterns of behaviour that, that indicate some kind of consciousness. You know, octopus it's conscious. You know, there's almost pretty much universal agreement amongst animal researchers now that an octopus is conscious. You know, it's conscious of itself, its surroundings, you know, and, and you know, everyone would say that their own pet is conscious of them, conscious of being hungry, you know, mm-hmm. conscious of things. So there's this whole spectrum of things. You know, it's not on or off, which makes it all the more exciting that as you start to build neural circuit simulations and stuff like that, that, you know, maybe we'll start to see things. And this is where I want to go next, because... If we accept that animals have different levels of consciousness, then that is troubling to this whole idea about human beings being on top of the pie. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And um, I think this is going to be our next big battle as, mm. as a kind of civilization in a way. I can kind of see it coming. You see it coming. There's a case this week in, I think, going to the New York Court of Appeals about whether a chimp should have human rights. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that, that is an ongoing case. It's a, it's a battle that we need to fight. Or, or we need to look at, we need to examine that. Because, I mean, personally, I think it's hard to deny that a chimp should have human rights. I should mean, have chimp rights? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, why should chimp rights be different from human rights, you know? <laughs> what you find more and more now is that you, you talk to animal consciousness researchers and, and those who, who kind of look into animal personality and cultures and, and stuff like that. And it's really hard to see why we feel like we're this pinnacle of creation, why, why we sort of think human beings are somehow separate and, and above the rest. And actually, when you look at it, a lot of that comes from, you know, a cultural and religious backgrounds where, you know, we're told in, in the Bible that, you know, that man is set above the, the creatures of the earth and given dominion over them mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And that, that's a, a very strong cultural belief that we have. 
and it's very sort of insidious, really, because it, it has permeated our whole relationship with animals and the animal kingdom. But I say that at the same time as I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not prepared for scientists to have to give up the right to experiment on animals at the moment. When I was writing that particular chapter, I almost turned vegetarian, but didn't quite manage it. And something in me still is happy to eat meat. But the, you know, the, the, when you look into this, you find a lot of the people who, who work on some of these issues of understanding, you know, what animals understand and feel that and are conscious of, they stopped eating meat. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they kind of felt like that this was something that they couldn't quite sanction. And so, so you know, there are issues of, you know, of animal experiments, uh, vegetarianism, animal rights, you know, cruelty to animals, um, right down to the point where people are questioning whether we should do experiments on a cockroach, you know, because it's not fair on the cockroach. <laughs> and to most people, that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I think it's a really interesting question to discuss. I want to look at a couple of examples that you talk about in the book, and, and you know, for all our consciousness, we'll leave... I don't know, chicken and salmon and what have you <laughs> alone. Um, chimps, nobody's ever, we're not going to eat a chimp. Well, um, not here. So, no, no but, not here. But but in in Africa, yes. True, but we are in Africa, the Gombe chimps, uh, a group of chimps that have shown you know, a distinct, well, culture, I guess. It's, yeah. it's not too much of a word for it. I don't think it's too much. I mean, it's not programmed behaviour. It's not genetic. You know, the same species in a different location does things differently. Mm-hmm. So they eat, for instance, um, I can't remember which way around it is, but it might be the Gombe chimps or another that, that you know, will go into a termite nest with a stick mm-hmm. and then they'll get all the termites on the stick and they'll just put them straight in their mouth. And others will use their fingers to, sort of, to, to pull them off uh, and then eat them with their fingers. You know, and in the same way that, you know, different cultures... Of humans will eat in completely different ways, yeah, and yeah. we all have different rules for which fork you use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and of course, you know, in you know, I lived in West Africa for a couple of years, and it's quite acceptable there to just you dig in and you eat communally with your fingers, mm-hmm. and you you don't see that going on so much in Hampstead, and you know, it's kind of there is a big sort of cultural baggage, and and the way they groom. So some chimps will groom, some groups will groom, you know, and then eat the ticks directly. Some will just flick them away. Some will squash them. You know, that, that's kind of the way they do it. But you can see these behaviours are transmitted mm-hmm. culturally. There's no kind of other word for it. You know, this is their culture. This is how they do it. And others do things differently. The other one I wanted to look at was pods of killer whales and the, yeah. and the sort of relationship they have with each other as well. So tell us, tell us about that. Well, the, the interesting thing is, so, so you get these... I think this is really... Kind of, it's like there's an obvious parallel here with human cultures and it's almost unmentionable. So <laughs> off Vancouver Island, you have these sort of pods of killer whales that sort of live there all the time. And then you have the travelling pods that kind of come in and, and do things um, in a different way. So the, the, the sort of native killer whales will tend to eat the fish... And they'll they'll speak in a certain or communicate in a certain dialect. I have to be careful with not anthropomorphizing everything here. They'll they'll have a certain dialect to their tones and their communications, mm-hmm. and they sort of behave in a certain way. And then you get these sort of transient visitors come in, and they'll prefer to eat the seals. So they go, you know, hell for leather. The seal, the, the seal population, and they come in and they have a different, you know, mode of communication. It's got a different dialect to mm-hmm. it. And uh, and you you kind of get this kind of sense that you know they're coming in on holiday, or or it's like a traveller community or something, and they just have different ways of doing things and different, you know, dietary preferences, if you like. So I don't know if it's like Brits going abroad and, and you know, eating fish and chips when they're in Spain or something, you know. But, the, but there's this kind of uh, sense that, you know, you come from one culture and, and even if you're in geographically, you know, visiting a certain place, you don't, you don't necessarily behave like the killer whales who are there. So, mm-hmm. so it seems like obvious that, that, you know, it's unarguable that there are not cultures in, in, in animals now. We've spoken briefly about, and the obvious question seems to be, does this affect how human beings treat 
animals, if we accept that animals have different levels of consciousness, what does it do to how human beings treat human beings? I mean, how, you know, how do we, how does it change how we think about ourselves? I think it should change. Uh, well, for me, it kind of changes that sense that we're special. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, we're nothing special. And we shouldn't act like we are. So th- that, for instance, should probably change our relationship with animals. But also, I think it enables us to see each other as a bit more biological rather than spiritual or soul-filled beings. And I'm kind of a bit cautious about this because you know our particular consciousness and the way evolution has shaped us has made us quite religious and naturally religious. So we've developed you know religious kind of ways of thinking, like you know we have a soul and and that you know we have some kind of existence beyond our physical bodies but that isn't ascribed to the animals in most religions you know or certainly certainly not in christianity Mm -hmm. it's not it's not that everything has a soul and i think i think maybe if there was one takeaway for us i would say you know we don't have souls either in some ways this is all we've got is here Mm -hmm. and now and you know you should make sure you make the most of life but that's quite an extrapolation from you know looking at animal research but yeah i think that's how it informs my worldview at least is that human beings are uh, nothing special in terms of different amongst the animals, mm-hmm. but of course, you know, we're special in that we have, you know, a very evolved consciousness, which makes us quite interesting things to be around. And so, uh, you know, I, I think let's study each other as well. You know, I think, you know, I'm a great observer of humans. I find them fascinating. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Michael Brooks and we're talking about his book At the Edge of Uncertainty, 11 Discoveries Taken Signs by Surprise. And in this part of the show, Michael, I think I've sort of loosely grouped the things I want to talk about into things that they're interesting scientific questions, but they're also political questions and societal questions, I think, as well. And as people see as we go along, a few political controversies as well as scientific controversies. You've already mentioned this idea of the, the mm. chimera, that, you know, the possibility of the use of either animal or human uh, material between the two. Genetic engineering is, is taking us down that road. What's When we talk about genetic engineering, those ideas are at the alarmist end of the, yeah, of, yeah. Of the argument. The, people think, oh, well, you could make a half-human being a half-pig or something. Yeah. But actually, let's talk about where those things are actually happening. I mean, there are there are quite alarming things if we allow them to be. Well, um, they're only alarming if you see them in, in a certain way, I would say. You know, for somebody with certain illnesses, they're incredibly promising and mm-hmm. hopeful things. So the vast shortage of organ transplants, uh, organs for transplant that we have, means that, you know, the prospect of a pig that grows a human liver is an incredible prospect. It's a great prospect. But you always look at it through, you know, whichever lens you, you come at it from. So so people who would oh, say... That pig's got consciousness. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, if you're the pig, then it's not a good thing, is it? And we've, you know, we've explored this. And, and of course, fiction explores this mm-hmm. a lot with this idea of, of harvesting organs from other creatures mm-hmm. or from other humans. So where we're at at the moment is that, you know, I think scientists in Japan have grown... Uh, a rat with a 
a mouse pancreas, or it might, might be the way around. Uh, I think it is. It's a rat, a, a mouse with a rat pancreas. And um, that doesn't seem like as much of a leap as no, you know, no, a mouse exactly. With a human so pancreas. No, no. But I mean, that's that's the way we we kind of think yeah. we want to go because, uh, and probably not the pancreas, but you know, something that would be transplantable eventually or at least experimentable upon if that's a word you know you can you can take this this mouse with a, say a human pancreas and you can look at what that pancreas actually does in in you know if you knock out certain genes or whatever you can see how it changes and you can find the root of of diseases that affect a human pancreas and look for cures so it, you know these medical advantages of doing something like this are, are kind of obvious in a sense although you know there is a legitimate question of whether that's is that a, a route we want to take? You know, mm-hmm. Do we want to get to the point where we're saying you know, it's okay to create anything with something human inside it because it has a medical purpose? And, and there are those who criticise this medical narrative. You know, scientists often justify whatever they want to do because they'll say, oh, but it's going to help cure the sick or the disabled. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to grow new spinal columns for people with, you know, with, with broken backs. And, and that you can kind of say, okay, you know, it does, it's hard to argue against it. But then scientists themselves have kind of said, you know, there are some things we don't want to do. For instance, you know, we don't want to put human neurons into a mouse. And we don't want the, the, even the prospect of a mouse starting to develop some kind of human consciousness. And equally, putting human genetics into uh, where it can turn into sperm cells, egg cells, inside an animal. So you could have the, the potential to kind of grow a, a human embryo inside a mouse is, is one of the scare stories that, that mm-hmm. the scientists themselves deliberately scared themselves yeah, with. Yeah, that's you know. the one I was particularly thinking yeah, about. Yeah, and, I, and I, I think what's really reassuring is when you look into this field, you know, it's not like the scientists are mad scientists, you know, with crazy hair running away doing, you know, anything they can get away with. They're very responsible about mm-hmm. this, you know, and this comes back to that issue about science being responsible. They've looked at this and they've said, well, we don't want to go here because we don't know what the outcomes of this might be. The adverse outcomes, you know, the things where you're growing a human fetus inside a mouse's womb... You know, that's not going to happen, we don't think, but we're not sure. So, we, you know, we're going to stop ourselves from doing that. And so I think there's, there's kind of good news here for those sort of critics of science who would mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, the mad scientists, they'll do any, they're doing anything. You know, they're going to kind of destroy the world with their crazy genetic engineering. And actually, there's a lot of very responsible work going on. Does the place we debate the ethics of that not sort of change the further forward that frontier is once we've successfully been able to harvest a liver or a kidney from a pig yeah is that not at the point where we say okay that's done that's worked that's normalized now perhaps we can start putting human embryos into pigs i mean that's always the argument isn't it that we won't know where to stop Uh, but people said that about ivf Mm -hmm. they said we shouldn't do ivf on humans and, you know, there's four million people alive today who are glad that we did. And so you, you can always make the argument that, like, oh, but that we've got to draw a line in the sand. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you cross this point, all hell will break loose. Well, actually, the lesson of history is that all hell has never broken loose with any of this. And so I think, you know, there has to be a modicum of trust. It can't always be a democratic decision. You know, we can't have a referendum on whether we should have three parent babies, Mm -hmm. for instance. Because actually, you know, these things are complex. Our natural gut reaction as human beings to alterations of nature is one of disgust, I think. And it it tends to be like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, that's not healthy. It's not good. It's Mm -hmm. not natural, whatever natural means. And so I think you you can't always be swayed by that kind of visceral gut reaction that you have. Sometimes you just have to say, well, you debate it both, you look at both sides. And scientists are pretty good at this. And lots of ethicists will work with them on this. And we've looked at both sides and we think on the balance of things, it's worth doing for X, Y, Z reasons. 
And it doesn't ever sanction the next step. That doesn't sanction the next step. Mm -hmm. When you get to the next step, then you look at that again with the same kind of careful set of arguments. To what extent, though, do we look at these things like, you know, again, I'll use the example of, of a pancreas in a pig. It often seems like short term, perhaps. We're going to, after this, the next place we're going to go to is human biology and particularly epigenetics. And we're now mm. discovering that um, changes in our environment can sort of follow us down the generations. Mm. What danger is there of us making these sort of chimeras and sort of creating new species, I guess, and changing species and putting these changes into into these animals for future generations? Well, I don't think we're yet at the point where there's any danger in terms of, you know, we're not creating things that are just, you know, being set free in the yeah. countryside, you know, they're, they're not roaming in our streets or anything, you know, procreating. Yeah, we want them to bring that liver back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I think, you know, this is a very careful advance. It's okay and it's good to question it. I just don't see it as dangerous. It's not a helpful word to use even, you know, these dangerous scientists. Actually, what for the most part they're trying to do is, you know, they come up against a, a set of diseases and they want ways to research them. And there's only so far you can go with computer models, although, you know, we're always trying to go further. And I, I think, you know, sometimes you just need more than just a normal mouse. I mean, you know, of course, we've bred mice and rats very deliberately for experimentation with certain characteristics sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, to help us do our research. And this is kind of the next step in that. So the fact that it contains human genetics is, on the face of it, you'd say, oh, no, we're mixing species. But we're not that different genetically from all the other species anyway. So it's not like, you know, we're, we're sort of seeing some, like, mad thing. You know, I think when they analyse the genome, when it's fully done, you know, we're expecting something like 20 of the 20,000 genes to be, you know, exclusively human. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not like, you know, we're, we're kind of making some fundamental change. And I think there are good reasons to pursue this research. So let's talk about epigenetics then. It's mm. always been thought that, like, you know, our destiny was our genes. Mm. And, and There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
what you were born with, that was it. That was sort of the hand you were played. But this is more and more seeming not the case. Well, it, it's interesting. So, you know, anybody who's got kids will tell you, you know, they can see from their genetics, they can see, you know, what genetics have been passed on, uh, characteristics have been passed on mm. to their children. And that's kind of, you know, how we started exploring the science a century or so ago. But when we worked out the human genome, decoded it all, you know, we kind of thought that was it. And then you realise that actually it sits in an environment. So within the cells, you know, it's surrounded by various chemicals and it's wrapped up in certain ways. And, uh, you know, so it's not, it doesn't just exist as, as kind of, you know, it's not just a long string of DNA that almost like a production line where you just pull things off. You know, it's coiled up tightly and certain environments will change the way it's coiled up. And when that happens, then certain genes are exposed to their immediate environment and chemicals in their environment. And so what we're discovering, I think Steve Jones put it really well, he said the more we discover about genetics the more important the environment seems to be. So, mm-hmm. so we kind of know what the recipe is for making all these proteins using DNA. But what we're finding now is that, you know, not all of them get made. They get made selectively. It's, I think in the book I use the kind of analogy of it being like a, a, a menu at a restaurant, you know, and, it, and the diners are there picking. You know, the menu doesn't mean everything on the menu mm-hmm. is going to be made. You know, the diners are there and they're picking what's going to be made and what's going to be brought to their table. And I think some of the some of what we're discovering in epigenetics is that is that you know if you put certain chemicals in into the environment of the DNA, then certain results will occur. And I have to say, you know, this is a science that's very much on the edge of uncertainty now. You know, we're starting to unravel some of this, but we don't know how far it goes in humans. We're sort of seeing signs that it travels three or four generations, possibly. Mm-hmm. So you get these changes that occur because of some chemical in the environment. And then that's passed on down through eggs and sperm. So, so that sort of marker stays on the sperm when normally it would be removed. You know, mm-hmm. the, and I think there was a study that showed sort of actually one in a hundred times it's not removed. And you, you know, we thought that biology was perfectly efficient. And of course, this is the whole thing we're finding the mess of biology, as it were. You know, not only is it not just about the DNA, it's, it's also not about whether the you know things get passed on or don't get passed on. It, it depends on what markers are there. It depends on how efficient the process is for removing them happen to be in that organism. So in plants, you've seen epigenetic changes passed on through sort of 30 generations or something. I mean, humans, we've seen it in two or three generations, mm-hmm. maybe four. But of course, you know, this is a young science and actually four generations of humans spans the whole of you know, our genetics understanding in some ways. So, so you know, we're, we're, it's very early days in trying to make sense of this. But there are some amazing examples. And let's talk about one of the... Um, there's there's a, a number of famous examples. Yeah. And it, I think a couple of them we've... I've talked about it on the show before, but a few years ago. So well, let's let's do it again. And the one I particularly like is the uh, the Dutch during the war. Example. Yeah. So this idea that you know there was this group of of Dutch uh, villagers, effectively, who were starved by the Nazis for supporting the resistance fighters, and then it turned out that the the women who were pregnant during that time they produced children who had certain proclivities, I don't know, certain, certain kind of... They were prone to certain diseases, so they were more prone to, I think it's breast cancer, heart disease, and uh, depression, or schizophrenia, I think it was. And that turned out to be also true of their children, mm-hmm. so there was something that clearly was passed on down two generations. And that's, I mean, that's remarkable in itself because that tells you that if you are affecting a population by their diet, by restricting them, by oppressing them in some ways, and stress 
is now known to be a cause of epigenetic change and uh, and famine as well. So change, you know, stressful changes in diet are, are also associated with epigenetic changes. And that tells us something about our society. So you know, when you have you know people who are living on the breadline in in poverty or whatever, and you sort of say, oh, you know, they just should pick themselves up and get out of it. And, you know, and actually, what you find is that what you've created is this kind of class of people who are more prone to diseases, more prone to, you know, obesity is one of the things that can result from epigenetic changes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it it no longer becomes the responsibility of those individuals necessarily, but it's a genetic or epigenetic inheritance they've been given. And so we've got to be very careful about the pollution in people's environments. Actually, you've got to be very careful about the kind of poverty that they live in and stressful situations they live in. And I am kind of making a political point, really, that these things, it's not just, you know, you should pick yourself up out of the gutter. You know, the classic, you know, get on your bike and look for work. Actually, Mm -hmm. you know, when you create an underclass, you create a class of people who are, you know, whose health is extremely challenged, potentially, Whose you know whose ability to kind of get themselves out of situations or ability to you know or will have a, they'll have an increased um, mental illness problem you know you create all kinds of problems that you weren't necessarily thinking you know would cascade down the generations and then you wonder why it is that you know you can't get people out of poverty mm-hmm. and and uh, you know and we don't yet know that this is all epigenetics or you know we don't know how much of it is epigenetics but I think it it kind of adds fuel to that kind of sense of responsibility that this knowledge brings that once you realise that you get these kinds of changes going on and they're passed on through generations. And actually, I, I just think it's another argument for kind of dealing with poverty. But, you know, poverty itself is an argument for dealing with poverty as well. I'm Alex Kratosky, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I want to turn that on its head, really, and, and next talk about a way in which perhaps we could be said to be responsible ourselves for things that happen to us. So I might be asking you to get on your bike. This seems like an old wives' tale, but you talk in the book about how basically our, you know, our minds can affect our bodies. Yeah, it's it's such a difficult one because <laughs> everything in me says, well, A says, yeah, but surely not really. And then there's also a part of me that says, and we've known this for how long, you know? And this is, I, I think, fundamentally, I think this is where science is catching up and finding techniques for looking into something that we've always known to be the case. So this is the idea, I mean, it's got a a scientific discipline to itself now, it's called Mm psychoneuroimmunology. But it's it's the idea that the mind affects the body and it affects your physical well-being. And the extent to which that is true, we are still trying to kind of elucidate, we're still trying to make, uh, you know, find good ways to tell how much difference it makes to be positive, to have Mm -hmm. positive mental attitude. But, you know, this is... You know, you can go back probably millennia and people would say, you know, we've known that being optimistic of when you're ill. In fact, I, I came across a, a story recently where there's a, a, a 16th century astrologer uh, was also a physician and he was treating the Archbishop of Scotland and the Archbishop of Scotland treating him for asthma. And the, the Archbishop asked him to give him his horoscope as well because you know you're in astrology you're really good at this you know mm-hmm. you, you've done a good job with the asthma now just can you do my horoscope the uh, the astrologer said uh, he, he, he looked you know he wrote all this down he, he looked at his horoscope it really wasn't good it, it, like, it looked like things were going to work out mm-hmm. very badly uh, for Archbishop Hamilton and so he just falsified the horoscope because he said it was more important that the guy was optimistic to, mm-hmm. to make sure his asthma was you know going to stay cleared up you know so I, I love the idea that you, you got this Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.